Yeah, Vaughn? Where do we go now? Where do we go now? Where do we go? Wrong album, but same idea. Different angle. Same result. I thought maybe we were doing Ozzy there for a minute. I was like, oh crap, did I listen to the wrong album this week? Well, we are again doing a uh, morning episode. So, you know, the sweet, sultry sounds of our voices will, I think, really shine through in particular. But as I get into our, you know, alpha male, manly, sultry, deep voice descriptions, I look at you on Zoom and you have your hair put up like Bam Bam in a sort of top ponytail, which appears to be tied in a fluorescent yellow, which I assume you got from uh, one of my nieces. Um, what's going on there? This is all 100% accurate. So I'm growing my hair long again. You know, I'm, I'm at the age where nice. pretty much every year I'm going to let it ride just to make sure that it's still there. Yeah. You know, well, it's, and it's starting it, to fall out in alarming rates. And I'm like, I want to grow it out just to make sure I still can. Your hair's falling out. Well, you know what I mean. It's it's thinning. I mean, like, oh, like, is it? Like for everybody, sure. See, mine's not thinning. Mine's just turning gray. Like I've got like this, I've got this salt and pepper thing coming on, which uh, you know some of the ladies kind of like. But man, makes regardless of that, it just makes me feel old and kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's like the one thing we always had in our 20s and 30s is sort of our hair as a predictable entity. And right now it's not. So, and everyone says it's not thinning, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in that in-between phase, which is a terrible place to be because it's it's not long enough yet to, to do its own thing, but it's, it's long enough to like get in my face. So I just go with the pebbles every once in a while. Yeah. Well, listen, I support you. I think it's uh you know, during COVID, as you saw from my recent passport photo, I'm I'm very fortunate. I I did my passport renewal right in the heat of COVID, and I had some pretty long ass hair and like rocking like the best full beard I probably in my entire life will ever be able to rock. I think I went like a good year without shaving. So uh my means of getting in and out of the country is this ridiculous I'm like 15 pounds heavy. Lot, super long hair, got the beard going. Now I'm all clean cut and back to corporate look. So um, yeah, it'll, I'll have for at least the next ten years. I'll have a nice, you know, COVID memento of me looking uh, basically like a criminal. I, I may not get let into some countries, you know, d- depending on the photo. I'll be honest. I don't think you're going to have any problem getting into other countries. I think your problem is going to be getting back into your homeland. Yeah, I think that could be challenging based on that. It's an amazing photo. It, I wish we could circulate it, but you know, it'd be illegal. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we can tweet it out. You know, I know how much we talk about sports occasionally on this, right? And uh, I know how much you personally love 
uh, Jim Nance's coverage of the Masters. You just are you're a big fan of his whole delivery and approach and mm, it's kind of the the broadcast that you look forward to every the song year. the masters the song. song yeah, yeah. so so nubs uh, for the record hates the entire masters sort of packaging from a tv standpoint rightly so i mean you know you i think you find it kind of cheesy and i think you find it kind of uh, a little bit uh, melodramatic you know with uh, all the different uh, ways in which they talk about this illustrious tournament and all this right so like first and foremost i love the golf tournament, just like I love all golf majors, right? I just, it's like any sport at its height of competition is amazing. And big up to, to Mickelson, by the way, (laughs) how about that? That was pretty cool. And by the way, Nubs does an incredible Phil Mickelson, um, just made a really big, important putt face. He's kind of got the, he's got the whole thing down the kind of awkward smile and acknowledgement of the crowd that Phil is so famous for, but uh, good, good for him. Good, good to see him still competing with the young pups. Right. He wasn't really doing the smile though. He's so intense yeah. uh, during Sunday, but that's probably why he won, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, wasn't goofing around, but uh, so I, I love the masters, but I have a sort of a general rule in life T and that is that anything that forces one to change their voice or like push their voice, I, I don't like. And the thing I hate about the Masters coverage is that all of the broadcasters, not just Jim Nance, but like everybody, when they talk about it, they have to go into this. The Masters on CBS. <laughs> right. The glory, the glory of Augusta. Yeah. And then they play that stupid music you know, in the background. You know, that actually sounds pretty good. You should do that this entire episode. I mean... Use your not- illusion. Use your illusion one. Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. Um, does two twins in an album ever force you to change your voice, Nubs? Only when I get so, you know, incredibly angry about you, like throwing something in the for sale bin that off sure. the air, I just start screaming at you. You know, people don't see our off the air antics. Yeah. You know, we're, we're sort of like, you know, a lot of famous duos where we might get along on camera, but off camera, we just hate yeah. each other. You it's know? a very volatile relationship. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're just like constantly just, you know, screaming at each other. So, yeah. Well, the first like five minutes or however long it's been, or our five minutes, our, our listeners will never have back. But here's my point of bringing up the uh, masters. Uh, there's a tagline, uh, which is a, a tradition like no other, right? A tradition like no other. Yeah. And I feel personally, I personally believe that uh, tonight's album, this morning's album, or albums, are an epic statement like no other. I, I really don't think anything compares before, at the time, or really since to the sort of grandness of this. And I always like to kind of jot down a few just basic, you know, adjectives. Uh, whenever we do this, just to kind of frame up what the initial reaction is, particularly with something that maybe you haven't gone top to bottom on in a long time. Here's kind of what I came up with plowing through, um, you know, part one evolution sounds like a band just really evolving, uh, diverse sounds, substance. So these guys had been sort of polished up and made to look like glam hair LA bands, which rightly so, 
but there's a lot of substance there and it comes through here. Uh, some indulgence. And we'll get to it. And sort of the end of an era in a lot of ways, because from a commercial success standpoint, clearly this record was incredibly successful or these records, I should say. But it was kind of the last of the hair glam genre because this record was released in the fall of 1991. One week after its release, what happened, Nub? I, I know this because it's such a significant music fact. It, it is that Nirvana's Nevermind was released. Exactly. Which is in, an incredible symbolic thing when you think about the fact. And in the, in the Metallica Black album is right in there too in a matter of, I think a few months. Yeah, it's true. And it, and it did define, you know, this, this moment that within a week span, you had this sort of end of an era blockbuster from what was considered. Now this is debatable, but to be more of a sort of glam metal type project with guns and roses. And then a week later enter Nirvana's nevermind, which obviously changed the face of music in the early nineties completely. And two of the most intriguing front men in rock history, but completely different from one another. I mean, just look at the characters that led these two operations, which you can learn more about by going back to episode one of two twins in an album. Hey, Nirvana's in utero cross promotion. Nice, Nice plug. Nice callback. Well done. And get a vibe for just how drastically different these two leaders were from each other, both with perhaps the same tragic flaw, but in totally different ways. And that manifests in the way that Guns N' Roses ended and in the way that Nirvana started. And uh, for it all to happen in a matter of one week is, is an incredible coincidence, but it's probably not entirely a coincidence. Well, we will get to it all. And the ways that this is going to work, this is going to be a two-parter because obviously it's a two-part record. Uh, in this episode, we'll go through one and we'll do the nerdy deets and we'll do the wonder stories and all that good stuff. And then I don't know what Nubs has in store for part two, but he will be taking the lead on, he will be quarterbacking part two where we will go through the second piece of this record and Maybe some other delights and surprises. Who knows? You never know what Nubs has up his sleeveless over there. There'll be a delight. No question. Indeed. Well, speaking of glam, let's glam out before we get to the record and do a little err round and round. Nubbles, what three albums have been on the turntable for you of recent? So you know me, T, always a sucker for the latest and greatest reissue. If it says Super Deluxe Edition on it, I'm probably going to buy it, which is why I can't find any more room in my basement for anything else. And one of the most recent is my favorite album from the Alan Parsons Project, which is Ammonia Avenue. Not the most popular of the albums. I think that would be iRobot, Eye in the Sky, but I love Ammonia Avenue. And they just released it with a Let's see. It's got a Blu-ray with surround sound. It's got vinyl. It's got CDs. It's got demos and outtakes. It's got all sorts of stuff that you really don't need. But All of which are completely necessary. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. 
And so pick that up. So I've been digging that. Uh, second would be the new album from one of my favorite current prog metal bands, which is Gojira, a French outfit. And uh, they were able to release and record a new album during the pandemic, which is Fortitude. It's already getting showered with praise, which has me very concerned because uh, <laughs> as we talked about with Royal Blood, if Gojira turns into festival rock, I might just quit the game. Oh, I might just be done. That Royal Blood album is so bad. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't even, I haven't even dug into it because I trust, I trust my twin brother so much in terms of your opinion on that, that, well, you know, that, that's high praise. <laughs> yeah. I don't need the frustration, but fortitude. I'm looking forward to digging more into it, but so far so good on first listen. And then lastly would be a little album from good old 1984, which would be reckless by Brian Adams. Mm, nice. Pretty loaded album, I would yeah. say. Run to you, heaven. Kids want to rock. Oh, and that other that other song that you know everyone covers all the time. It's got a little bit of junk on it too, just like most uh, kind of Brian Adams work. But it, so, what's uh, spinning round and round for you, T? Well, Nubs, I've got uh, one sort of revisited band after many years. And then I've got two live albums. So I'll start with the uh, revisited band. And this is the band Candlebox. I, I feel like these guys were really good and maybe got a little bit pigeonholed into that sort of nineties thing, which was sort of on the tail end of grunge, but they were certainly in that same genre, but They've continued to work. They've continued to put out albums. They even, I believe they have one coming out this year. And I think it's one of those bands that was sneaky, really good. So I'm going back and I'm, I'm going to say the self-titled one, but I'm also kind of looking at Happy Pills and Lucy and some of their other work just to, you know, kind of see how that uh, held up. But doing a little dig back on Candlebox to see, you know, were these guys good? And uh, you like them, don't you? Yeah, big fan of two of the three albums in the heyday Candlebox, the first album is is to me fabulous you know it's just loaded yeah. with great songs i love that record and happy pills was very good i know you're a bit fond of it too that one came out when we were in college and that one still is relevant the one that really just was a downer was lucy i don't know if you remember but it's it was like a terribly produced album i don't know what happened but the sound of it is just awful really yeah, and it had one single that flopped. I think it was called Simple Lessons. And but yeah, it just didn't do well. So, but yeah, that first Candlebox album to me is is still one of the kind of pinnacle albums of the 90s. I, I still love it. Yeah, I would agree. The second is uh by this band called New Order that you may have heard of. And uh this is a live record that was put out fairly recently. It's called Education Entertainment Recreation. So looking forward to that. Obviously, their live presentation is always pretty interesting. And the third is from a band out of Australia that I've talked about a little bit before called Powderfinger. And I finally got my hands on, thank you, Discogs, a copy of the Sunsets uh, Farewell Tour, which was in 2010. So they've regrouped a couple times for a couple shows, benefit shows and those type of things. I think there's a day that these guys get back together. It hasn't quite happened yet, but a great band, a great band that I've always liked and hearing this, uh, this double live uh, deal uh, on the deal there from their uh, farewell tour in 2010 is good stuff. So, um, Nubs, you know, we kind of already teed up what we're talking about here, how we're going to do it. Why don't we dig right into the nerdy deets? Dun, dirt, cheap. Hey, you want some dirt? 
Use Your Illusion 1 by Guns N' Roses. Have we even said that yet? Have we said the band name yet? I don't know. Was released on September 17th, 1991. The same day as its counterpart. Wait for it. Use Your Illusion 2. Clever. Yeah, I think they did a good job on that. Uh, It debuted at uh, number two on the charts. Nubs, do you know what was holding the number one spot at this time? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, 1991. God, that could go in a lot of different directions. I mean, I would guess the Black Album. It was Use Your Illusion 2. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So the lead single uh, for the band uh, in sort of, you know, amping up for this release was You Could Be Mine, which was actually released as part of, I think, one of the Terminator, was it Terminator 2 films, I believe. Um, and, And so that User Illusion 2 actually had the lead single on it. So it debuted higher than User Illusion 1 on that same day, which is kind of interesting. But those two um, records obviously held the top two spots. It went seven times platinum, as did its counterpart. And that's pretty amazing considering that Kmart and Walmart at the time uh, did not stock the album due to the vulgarity and profanity and antics of one w axel rose in particular i would imagine uh there were half a million copies of this sold in the first two hours pretty incredible those are numbers that you just don't even see anything close to anymore and uh, obviously it takes a very special release to get you to those numbers within that short period of time it was nominated for a grammy so uh they did not win they didn't have to give the grammy back now but um it was nominated And this was their first record with Matt Sorum on drums and Dizzy Reed on keyboards. So really, this was the, while it was their third studio album, technically, uh, it was their first as a six piece in sort of this, I guess, more, you know, epic and sort of, um, I guess, modern at the time look at what Guns N' Roses had evolved to be. Uh, what really defines the record, a few different things. The first is obviously the instrumentation. So the addition of Dizzy on keyboards, but really the usage of piano throughout the record is very prevalent, very interesting. You did not hear a lot of piano on Appetite for Destruction, which was their first record, uh, or on Lies. So, you know, that was a notable addition. The other thing that's notable is just part one, just what we're talking about on this particular part of the episode was 16 tracks and 76 minutes. Now, you're lucky these days to get a record that exceeds 40. This is 76 minutes. So people definitely got their 1499s worth on this one, Nub. Um, And there were also 14 tracks on Use Your Illusion 2. So, you know, carry the two, that's 30 tracks as part of this release. Now, this becomes up for debate. Did it have too many? Was there too much filler? Could this have been just a monstrous, epic, classic all-timer as one album rather than two. Uh, Nubs, I'm very interested in your thoughts there. But, you know, I think what was key to this is that this band just became, and this is a good thing, so unpredictable as far as their direction. Appetite for Destruction was their debut, and this was as, you know, sort of glam as it gets. Now they had a harder edge to them and a bit more of kind of a driving approach and a more aggressive approach, but they were still a Sunset Strip LA glam metal band. Appetite for Destruction really um, showed that. Their second studio album, if you even want to call it that, 
was a 33 minute, you know, sort of almost compilation called Lies. And it had a front half with a couple of live songs from an EP they had done before Appetite. And then the back half was sort of this run of acoustic songs. It almost, it behaves more like an EP than it does a full album, but it was technically their second studio album. Very interesting, very unique for a band to take that approach. (laughs) See, this band was so mismanaged. And just look at the discography to know that, you know, they put out the, the, one of the biggest selling albums of all time. They follow it with a very ill-timed, weird EP-ish, (laughs) album-ish thing. Right. It hardly contained a lot of original material. Then they come out with these two just completely, you know, bloated, epic, whatever you want to call it, depending on what side of the spectrum you're on with, with GNR. And they sell a ton of copies, but sort of ruin the band. And then what do they do next? They follow it with a covers album, The Spaghetti Incident, which is like <laughs> a complete disaster in every way. Yeah. And then what do they do next? They take 35 years to make an album that they name dropped the title of, you know, like after The Spaghetti Incident came out, Chinese Democracy, it took way too long to put together. And by the time it came out, even though it's a very good record, like, People sort of didn't care because they were over it. I mean, just the people at the controls, <clears throat> Axl Rose, completely <laughs> destroyed the band just purely out of timing and business decisions. Well, it, absolutely. And, and this, this band could not get out of their own way. And, and we'll get to that a bit further. Um, the record was produced by Mike Klink. So another callback to a previous episode, Nubs, this was the producer that started on Metallica's Injustice for All. He was then canned and replaced by Fleming Rasmutin, um, which we talked about quite a bit there in that uh, Injustice for All episode. But Mike Klink is a you know polished, um, accomplished pop and metal producer. At this time, he was doing more metal. So you can tell by that choice, the band definitely was um, they, there was nothing raw about this record. This was pretty produced. This was pretty layered. And, and Mike Klink did a great job on these records. I mean, he obviously had a lot of material to work through and a lot of different things to try and sort of make sense of. And I think, you know, this was a task from a producer standpoint. The band was involved in production, but I think you can hear Mike Klink's impact when you hear some of his other stuff. Um, and he produced some really good bands and some really good records. Do you think um, that like anything working with Axl Rose would be anything other than a task? No, you know? no. I mean, and it's, you know, it's kind of the, the, the mad genius thing. I mean, the, the guy clearly, clearly has a lot of depth and a lot of brilliance, but boy, especially at this time was that complemented with a lot of complication. And I don't, I think some of that, has matured and some of that he's grown up and some of it will always be Axel. Right. And we, you know, you continue to see a lot of that to this day, but yeah, I, I would say props to Mike Klink for the work on, on this effort. I love the artwork. Um, it's actually sort of detailed from, uh, one of Raphael, my favorite Ninja Turtle, by the way, uh, one of his paintings called the school of Athens. That's really what the uh, cover art is, is made off of. Obviously this record has the orange and yellow scheme. Use your illusion Two, which nubs will cover in the next part uh, has the purple and blue scheme. Nub. I love the, the album art. I mean, this is, this is iconic. I love the color schemes on one and two. 
you're an album art guy, what do you think of these pieces here? One of the true strengths of the uh, the whole operation with the user illusion albums is the imagery. And remember when they toured this album, they used this as their sort of backdrop and their stage setup. It's tremendous imagery. And again, it's grand, it's epic. It's sort of historical. There's depth to it. It was easily identifiable. That's Axel at his best. To your point, there's a lot of genius there. He was really, really incredible at imagery, branding, you know, just the whole idea behind what you were going to think about when you thought about Guns N' Roses and the imagery that they associated with what we all think about when we think use your illusion is stunning and very effective. It's definitely a strong point of of the whole package. Yeah, you drew, I think you made a good point early on drawing some comparisons between Axel and Kurt Cobain. One of the things I would certainly say as a comparison is that they're both true artists. You know, I mean, Axl Rose, you think of the guy, you know, stomping around and screaming and howling and occasionally jumping into the crowd and stomping on people, you know, that sort of thing. But at his core, this guy is a true artist, you know, musically and and expressively. And, you know, I think sometimes that gets overlooked and it's probably his own fault more than anything. But, you know, I, I do think that that's an important thing to keep in mind as you sort of work through this. As far as the, you know, the members in addition to Axel, you've got the aforementioned Matt Swarm and Dizzy Reed. You also have Izzy Stradlin, who had a huge impact on part one of the Use Your Illusion duo. Some would say he had more of an impact on a lot of the filler tracks than he did the important ones, but he had an impact on some of the, some of the key songs to this as well, uh, very much so. Uh, a guy named Saul Hudson, that's Slash, of course. Saul, love that his name's Saul. And uh, Michael McKagan, otherwise known as Duff McKagan, rounded out along with Axel, you know, sort of this, I would say, updated version of the band that had sort of evolved a bit and expanded a bit from its form during the Appetite era. Um, There's this great compilation, by the way, Nub. I don't know if you've ever watched it on the old YouTube there, but it's Axl Rose. It's like a compilation of Axl Rose getting pissed off at the crowd. <laughs> and, you know, it takes place during some various eras. Usually it involves a member of the crowd throwing something on stage. He really didn't like to, and who does really, but he really didn't like to have things thrown on stage. But it's him in many cases getting pissed off and in many cases just reasoning with they he had this thing where he would kind of quiet everybody down and sort of try to reason with the crowd. And Oftentimes it actually kind of worked. Um, Axel was not, you know, I think he had a temper. I think he had some issues. If you look at his childhood and those type of things, clearly there were some, there was some baggage there, but I don't think at his core, Axel Rose was this like insane, violent, crazy person. I think he was troubled, but I think he had a very much of a soft, again, sort of artist side to him that if you look back now, when we're not in the circus magazine MTV era, and kind of assess it, you know, you, you see some different sides to him, even during his moments of, uh, of anger and those type of things, which in some cases may have been kind of playing the part and in some cases may have been genuine. I, I agree with everything you just said, but I think it suggests one word, unstable, maybe volatile sure. is even better than sure. unstable. You know, he's just a very volatile individual. I'm sure sometimes he could be the sweetest, most introspective, expressive guy. But, you know, there's plenty of documentation out there to also prove that 
he loved chaos and loved to throw things into chaos. And then once it got into chaos, he wanted to be in control of it. So I, I don't know. It's just very unstable, very unpredictable. And that's one of the reasons we all loved him, you know? Hey, T, do you want to talk about the worst drummer of all time to ever be famous now or later? <laughs> you can touch on it now if you'd like. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to say it. Matt Sorum sucks. And, and one of the worst things that ever happened to this band was Steven Adler, who was a terrific drummer and clearly had personal demons and addictions that he had to fight and therefore had to leave the band. And for whatever reason, the, the biggest rock band in the world, or at least one of two, went out and found the most just incompetent and I don't even want to say overrated because I don't even think he's overrated. He's just bad. Matt Sorum from The Cult. Hmm. You can hear it on this album. I mean, in watch any clips of Guns N' Roses with Sorum. I mean, he, he really was such a weak link. God, Matt Sorum, if you're listening, I, I apologize on behalf of my twin brother. I mean, uh, if Matt Sorum's listening to us, that's a good sign. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, um, I never thought of him as particularly great, but I never thought of him as particularly awful. I mean, uh, love the cult, too. So that's interesting. That's interesting. What made him bad? Very little skill. You know, I would say he, he really was kind of a thumper and he was like a groove player, but didn't have a ton of groove. Listen to how much he plays through a lot of Slash's riffs, which Slash was a terrific guitarist from a rhythm perspective. And Izzy Stradlin for sure was one of the best rhythm guitarists of the time. And Sorm like would never capitalize on any of it with any creative parts. He just kind of get up and thump his way through songs, even on some of the punkier stuff. It almost sounds like he couldn't keep up with a lot of it. It just, you know, listen to the album as we go through it with that lens. And it, it's just not as good as it's not what Guns N' Roses deserved. Yeah. From a drummer standpoint. And one funny thing too, T is it, do you have the DVDs or I know, I know DVDs are outdated for some, I still love them, but the use your illusion tour, there were two, they released two different volumes of a use your illusion concert. Yeah. Yeah. Go back and watch them. And th there's like a Matt Sorum drum solo on it. It's just <laughs> God awful. Really? It's, yeah. It's terrible. Stuff that you were doing in seventh grade kind of deal. Yeah. I mean, there, there were so many people that could have been a better fit for this gig. It's one of the biggest gigs in the world. And I don't, I still don't know why he got it. Well, I, Axel definitely was a fan of the cult. I mean, Axel had great appreciation for music. I remember him wearing Faith No More Angel Dust shirts during shows, Jane's Addiction ritual shirts. I mean, he Axel liked good stuff. <laughs> you know, there's no question. And I, I definitely think, again, it goes back to him just being a true musical artist. Um, you know, I think, I think he knew what was good. I think he knew what, you know, separated itself from kind of, as you call it, dumb rock um, versus things that, uh, you know, really kind of had more of a significant impact and more of a creative impact. The great debate, obviously, on this entire, um, you know, use your illusion saga is could this have been consolidated into one perfect album? I don't know. Nubs, maybe in part two, I'm not sure what you got up your sleeve, but maybe in, in part two, we could um, kind of compile our ideal single album from these songs and we can compare track listing and, you know, see what we'd come up with. But a lot of people have done that. You know, they've kind of gone back and said, boy, if I could take one and two, put it into a single album and, and 
come up with the track progression. Here's what I'd come up with. And there've been some pretty interesting ideas there. I call it double album syndrome. I've had this debate with a lot of uh, other music fans when it comes to double albums that could be consolidated into one. I know the Beatles, why about the Beatles white album is probably the most famous example. You know, if you take all the good bits from the white album and squeeze it into one disc, you have what would have to be considered one of the top two or three Beatles albums. Now you lose the grandeur, right? You lose the double album status. Melancholy and the infinite sadness is another good example. I mean, think about if you took all the great bits from both of those and made it one, I think you'd have the pumpkins best album, but you would lose the whole experience of the double album, which was just as important symbolically as it was musically. So yeah, it's always an interesting debate. And yeah, maybe, maybe we can do that on episode two. We'll see what I have up my sleeve. That's right. That's right. You never know. The last thing we'll touch on in the deets here is the use your illusion tour was just, <laughs> just freaking yeah. legendary. I they mean, need to make a movie about it. Yeah. Oh God. So it started in January of 91. It started, you know, almost a year before this record even came out and they were playing a lot of the material from it. I mean, this, at this time, this band was just, they were just making so much money drawing arena crowds. I mean, they, they were working hard and they were playing hard too. And this started well before this record even came out. It it went from January, 1991 to July of 1993. So, you know, this is a two and a half year escapade here with plenty of twists and turns. It included the famous run with Metallica. It included some classic, classic Axl Rose moments uh, in St. Louis when he declared, thanks to the lame ass security. I'm going home and chucked his microphone down. His microphones were always funny. This was the one that had that white, like foam. Uh, what do you yeah. call those sounds? You know, those it was like a guards. white mic with red foam. Always, yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Totally weird and hilarious. So that was in St. Louis, obviously led to a, a, a riot. Um, in August of nine, and this is a positive cool thing here in August of 1991, the day after mixing was completed on the use your illusion records, the band played this like epic three and a half hour show at the LA forum in their backyard. And apparently it was just incredible for those that were there. Uh, Izzy Stradlin obviously quit the band shortly, very shortly after the record release, about two months after it came out. He returned for some shows in 1993 toward the tail end of this use your illusion tour. The band was obviously a complete disaster. Um, and, and Izzy has not been shy about noting that, but he did return for some shows. Izzy kind of, I think, always wanted to be a solo act, wanted to play more bluesy kind of thing. I mean, you could tell from his uh, eventual work as a solo artist and with some of the bands that he sort of was the front man for, uh, that he had kind of a direction and a specific thing that he wanted to do. And it seems like Guns N' Roses for him felt like more of a stepping stone than it did a band that he really wanted to be in for a long time. So didn't take long after these records, which he had a lot to do with. He contributed heavily particularly here on part one for him to leave the band. Uh, Axel was then arrested um, for the St. Louis incident. Uh, riot incitement, I believe was the official term. And he had that famous, uh, you know, interview with Kurt Loder in the back of the limo right after he uh, was released on bail, you know, with oh, Kurt. Yeah. The limo. Yeah. That's right, dude. Yeah. Very, uh, very, very famous uh, interview there right after Axel's arrest. and. And he's just smirking though. I mean, he just could, could care less that he got arrested. And, you know, at that point they were just in 
in such chaos that I think if things were normal, he probably would have felt felt odd. And uh, of course, in Montreal in 1992, as part of the Metallica run, you know, James Hetfield was injured pretty badly by a uh, pyrotechnic that exploded on stage accidentally right where James was standing. Um, and of course, you know, Axel, as noted in the year and a half uh, in the life of documentary, I think Lars mentioned that, you know, Axel could have came out and saved the day and put on an incredible show. Well, instead, Axel came out and he was, you know, pissed off about um, the, the sound check in the monitor system and he was having vocal trouble. And so he basically deserted the show about halfway through, which led to yet another riot. So, you know, that that's like the tip of the iceberg on this tour. But it was a it was a legendary, completely infamous tour for the band that went on forever and obviously was riddled with chaos, which, you know, uh, wasn't unique to this band at all. But, you know, when you listen to this record, the dichotomy of Guns N' Roses is always fascinating. And it go, it's, goes along with their band title. You know, I mean, it's got, you know, sometimes it's become so iconic that you don't really think through it. But, you know, Guns N' Roses is, is a duality message, right? And the artistic expression, the albums, the output, the presentation, everything about this band had constant duality. I don't call it inconsistency because, you know, some could interpret it that way. You could say, how, how can you be so this and so this at the same time? But these guys were authentic in both. You know, they were authentic in their aggression, but they were also authentic in their artistic expression. And it works. I think that's part of what worked about these guys. You know, they weren't being phony about the rock and roll thing, but they certainly weren't being phony about the more, you know, dare I say it, tender artistic moments. And I think that's what led to the authenticity of Rose as an artist and sort of the authenticity, um, while it's imperfect, of this use your illusion effort. And Nubs, before we get to the record, let's knock out the wonder stores. Nubs, who has a little bit of duality himself, I would say. Um, what were you doing that one day? You were saying how much you liked a, a Starship song, but you were wearing a Mastodon shirt. I mean, that's duality, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. What's your Guns N' Roses wonder story, buddy? Well, see, as you all know, for you and I growing up, this was a very, very naughty band. <laughs> very naughty the masters on cbs <laughs> now you sound like alan aldman's pillow talk you've kind of gone <laughs> yeah. into new territory here these guys were just naughty uh, i remember my earliest memory of guns and roses was getting my cassette tape of appetite for destruction ironically destroyed by my dad who saw the parental advisory sticker as a, a sign of the revolution and he found my Guns N' Roses tape and got rid of it. And that was devastating. And so th- this band was appealing to us when we were, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old because they were naughty. You know, you already talked about how the record was sort of banned from certain stores and outlets. And everyone knew Guns N' Roses as this dangerous band. Now, looking back, it's like, these guys were dangerous. I mean, look at everything that's happened in our 
world and lives since. But parents all over the world saw this band as the reason why the world was going to fall apart. And so my earliest memory is that is sort of this forbidden fruit, right? I wasn't a huge Guns N' Roses fan, even through User Illusion. I loved a lot of the songs, but these were not records that I listened to top to bottom a lot because I was doing other things. And, and as you mentioned, it's quite a commitment to listen to these top to bottom, but fell in love with some of the, the new direction that these albums brought on. We'll, and we'll get into that with the track by track. But the key part to my wonder stories is the one time that I saw Guns N' Roses. This was in 2002, maybe three, like around that era when Axel got the whole thing back together. This was what year did Chinese democracy finally come out? Uh, well, that was my album of the year in 2008. Eight. Okay. So this would have been, you know, a, a few years before that came out. He sort of got the band back together and did a tour. And it was meant to, I think, rebuild the audience so then eventually the album could come out. So it was before Chinese democracy came out. And it was this gaggle of of people, you know, the, nothing resembling the original band. I think I want to say Dizzy might have been the only original member. I kind of was done with Guns N' Roses that night. Because Guns N' Roses was not at a commercial peak in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they were really rebuilding for a new generation. And they played the Palace of Auburn Hills and, and the place was like half full, you know, because the tickets were really expensive and it was just, you know, people, a lot of people are just sort of over it. But Axel being Axel made the whole crowd wait until I think the time he finally went on was like 1115 PM is when he hit the stage. And we're all just sitting there for literally hours. Just like, is this going to happen or not? It was the longest I've ever waited for a band to come out. And then he comes out and, you know, he's, he's a little overweight at that point and he's trying to be the, the guy he used to be. And it was just, it was like a parody. It was like it, you, you could have confused it for a comedy act. And I left like halfway through because it was like, I, I can't sit there anymore of this and it's late and I'd love to hear November rain and all, but I, I can't. And that was the only experience I had. Now, since you know he's gotten the original band back together, and I've heard the shows are are pretty are pretty cool, but I just have a sour taste in my mouth from the way that the band was managed, as we talked about earlier. Just all of the kind of drama and all of that really did take away from the music. And then when I finally got a chance to go see Axel live, it was just kind of a disastrous experience. So it's been an up and down ride. Certainly one of the ups is these two records, no doubt about it, but there's a lot of downs as well. So I don't know, T, it's just a mixed bag with this band. And I think you had a little bit more of a steady relationship with Guns N' Roses, although probably some similar ideas. So <laughs> tell me your wonder story. And I need to know too, did you ever see them live? I don't think you did. I don't know that anyone's had a completely steady relationship with these guys but yeah maybe more so than most i would agree hey really quick before i get to it how do you think appetite for destruction has held up i'm, I'm kind of interested do you do you listen to that a lot and when you do what do you kind of find I mean it's yeah where does that one rank for you very low yeah i've never been a huge fan even when it first came out i had it more because you were supposed to have it sweet child of mine is just one of the most you know kind of overplayed overdone songs ever Welcome to the Jungle's role as like a sports anthem has sort of ruined that song too, because it's just used 
so much. There's a few things like deep cuts on the album. Like Mr. Brownstone is a song I really like. I've always liked that. So I, I do respect the album and I see its importance. I think it's become overrated in hindsight. I think that people overvalue it a little bit. But no, it's not one I go to a lot. I own it, but I only own it in like a single vinyl format. I never bought any of the 3000 reissues or anything like that. I'm with you. I, I don't know that it's held up. I mean, I never pop it in. I don't. I mean, that for me, that would be like a collecting dust at best, maybe even for sale. But I mean, I just don't. I don't really connect with it. Now, I think it's critically important to the history of rock music, obviously, and and that sort of thing. But yeah, I don't I don't think it's held up that well. Um, and I don't really have a strong connection to it. Um, per your question, getting back to that, I, I did see them live um on Chinese democracy for the first time. The revolving door of of members, you know, of this touring outfit in the last, you know, 20 years. Uh, you know, to your point about when you saw them, it's been pretty crazy. Now it seems like they've kind of reset now with Slash and Duff and, you know, sort of back to old form. This was with a, a basically Axel plus a bunch of great musicians type of uh, approach on Chinese democracy. And I mean, I thought they were great. You know, he, he sounded good. I, I Ch- Chinese democracy was my album of the year in 2008. I, I really loved it. Um, still love it. You know, what I recall is I, obviously the welcome to the jungle video was a big deal, you know, of, um, you know, seeing him get off the bus and you know the guitar intro and the two different looks of axel i mean the duality again where he he looks one way kind of with his like soft features and hair pulled back um you know getting off the bus obviously in la and then you know he's all glammed out with his hair crazy and all that during the actual performance even early on they were trying to show i think the two sides of axel rose what I really got into weirdly was lies. I mean, I had that cassette tape and I would just play the hell out of it. I mean, I loved their version of Mama Kin. You know, I didn't even know or care that that was an Aerosmith song. I just thought it was like this sweet Guns N' Roses track, you know? I think like after like three years, somebody finally told me, you know, that's not their own song, right? And the acoustic stuff was cool. I mean, Patience was a tremendous hit. And that's an important part of this too, because you know, people overlook patience a little bit because it's not as much of a classic rocker from these guys. But, you know, to come out with an album like Appetite, to follow it up with, to your point, this kind of bizarre, unique approach with lies also carried with it a tremendous smash hit with patience, which was whistling guitars and vocals and nothing else, right? So it showed the many sides of this band. And I think that's part of what led to the excitement about Use Your Illusion. I, part of what I remember being so excited about it this time was, you know, the unpredictability of it. You know, with Metallica's Black Album, you kind of knew you were going to get something produced, something mega, and you sure did. Um, other albums at the time, you know, you kind of knew what to anticipate with user illusion. You had no idea what direction they were going to go. And, and I think that's not only part of what was exciting at the time, but part of what's exciting about the revisit. I think Axl Rose is just a complete genius, um, clearly troubled, clearly, you know, baggage and, and clearly has had a lot to kind of grow from over the years. And it's been fun to watch him grow. Um, and it's been fun to, in some cases, watch him grow up. I mean, he's a, he's a sweet guy, you know, when you watch him in his element where he's just, you know, talking about his music or his art, 
without a lot of uh, drama or controversy. You know, I think Axl Rose has, has a good heart. Uh, around this time, though, the, the chaos of his character, um, I think, comes through in a positive way as far as how it impacted this record. But I'm a huge, huge fan of his. I'm a huge fan of Slash's playing. I mean, I think that they're a great band. And I said from the onset, Substance, you know, these were these guys were kind of molded, you know, and and they did obviously come up through the LA scene with nicknames and with signature looks, you know, I mean, Slash with the hat and the sunglasses and Duff with his kind of burnt out deal and Axel with his many different, you know, approaches of as far as image goes. I mean, these guys were definitely made up a bit, but what I love about them is when you plow through all that, in some cases, kind of nonsense, you've got really good musicians, I think really committed artists. And that's part of what's really great about Use Your Illusion 1. And on the heels of all those things, why don't we go ahead and dive into it? We got 16 tracks, so quite a few to get through, uh, but we will do it as efficiently as we can. Nubs, what do you say we plow through it? Drop that. Needle baby. All right. Well, you know, the beginning of what would be a, a grand total of a 30 track effort begins with part one, which contains 16s and kicks you off in a bit more of a rocker fashion. This is probably something that, you know, people were expecting to hear when they got in their car after the midnight sale and popped in the cassette uh, with one that had more of kind of a driving, probably more anticipated and expected tone to it with Right Next Door to Hell. Coming out pretty hot, right? And uh, yeah, right next door to hell, hot. You know, there you go. I didn't even plan that. What do you think, buddy? Hey, um, you know, this thing comes at you hard and heavy and fast. Great. Uh, love the bass intro. Love the way it builds. So it's kind of a nice layered build to it. I think it's a great opener to this. Now, again, it, it sets the table a bit to where um, it's like, in a way, it almost feels like let's get this expected sort of rocker out of the way because the remainder of the album takes you in sort of twists and turns. It almost felt like they didn't want to hit you over the head immediately with something too out there or too unique or too different, but something that probably at the time was a bit more traditional Guns N' Roses. I think it does a great job. I love popping in the record and hearing that bass part. Yeah, I hear like a real punk influence here, you know, more like a Ramones thing than a. 80s glam metal thing. It always bothers me when people refer to Guns N' Roses as glam metal. They they weren't that at all. They were more influenced by no. rap and punk than they in were the, in their you know. image. I think they were, but in their music, you're absolutely right for sure. And Axel is like essentially rapping over the top of this, you know, and it's like a punk rhythm with a typical slash, more intricate guitar part than those might give him credit for. And that trademark bass sound. I mean, one of the things that Mike Klink really did to contribute to these albums is created a bass sound that was so unique and so identifiable. And just the way that Duff played, you know, heavy with the pick was 
was really important to the sound, but, but Axel's virtually like rapping over the top of this. And I think I remember him being sort of influenced by hip hop and things like that. I mean, he was, he was such a absorber of music definitely, in all, in all sorts of different areas. So definitely, you know, on one hand it's, it's, it's expected in, in very GNR like, but on the other hand, it's got some, you know, kind of interesting aspects to it that you wouldn't expect. So yeah, it, it's a nice kickoff. I don't like the fact that it doesn't have a lot of emotion in it because you do see that this album has moments of incredible depth. And obviously we'll get to a couple here, but it goes into the diversity of the album, right? I mean, it's just a chugging rocker with very little feeling, but a, a, a ton of energy. Well, you mentioned Duff. Duff contributed to the composition with a writing credit on track two, I think, which showed you right away that this was not going to be, you know, sort of your basic, uh, put the single on track two, and this thing's just going to be loaded with rock or hits. You get that blues influence, which you get quite a bit throughout uh, Use Your Illusion 1 here with track two, Dust and Bones. No, I think there's some decent uh, drumming there from Matt Sorum. No, a little little bell ride action, you know. Come on, give, you know, give the guy a little credit here. Ugh, so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a lazy rocker sort of deal. It's like a bar song, you know. And uh, yeah, you know, it's all right. Yeah, you know, I, I like the 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 dichotomy of track one into track two here. That's the one thing I almost think of them as a package where, you know, you've got this blazing rocker and then it takes you into what was probably a little bit more unexpected to your point, this very prevalent piano blues sound. And it, I, I think it's the moment you realize that, you know, okay, I knew this was already going to be different because it's two parts and 30 tracks, but you know, there's going to be some stuff on here that I didn't anticipate and I didn't expect. And I kind of like the way that Dustin Bones, you know, sort of portrays that. So I always think of, uh, you know, I, 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 you kind of have to listen to both. I never just listen to Dustin Bones or right next door to hell. I kind of think of those two as a package, which again, guns, roses, you know, aggressive, sweet, you know, rock and roll artistry this constant sort of uh, duality and dichotomy taking place. I actually think the first two tracks, you know, do a good job of spelling that out. All right, let's get to a cover here. Uh, this is obviously a song by this band called wings. And uh, this song from this movie with this star uh, character named James Bond in 1973, live and let die. You know that that cool uh, that that cool little uh, top 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 top. You know, um, do you think that was Matt Sorum's idea, or you think they just told him to do it? Or <laughs> after this episode, are you going to start the uh, Matt Sorum fan club? No, you know I don't think he's that good either. But it's just funny that uh, there have been you know a couple of decent drum moments here after you 
pretty much ridiculed. You pretty much ruined the guy's career <laughs> here on two twins and an album. <laughs> I, I'm sitting here doing a podcast. He toured the world with Guns N' Roses for, uh, you know, 10 years. He won. These are facts. These are facts. I think this is one of the best covers ever made. And it's sort of, hmm. I do like the sequence of how it comes along because I remember as a young listener, I was sort of like, okay, right next door to hell. Okay. Dustin Bones. Like, where are we going with this? And this cover of live and let die is at the very least incredibly captivating. I mean, it really grabs your attention. They took a composition. I think it's one of Paul McCartney's best compositions. You know, Paul McCartney's like the quantity theory is written a million songs and like a quarter of them are good. This is one that is really a, a pretty extraordinary composition, just purely from a musical standpoint. And Guns N' Roses, and I don't know who led the charge here. I'm guessing it was Axel, really capitalized on the elements. Because if you listen to the McCartney version, it explodes, but it doesn't explode with the ferocity that it really deserves. You know, it's a, it's a great song, but it doesn't really get to that height. And what they do here with the, you know, faster pace and the louder guitars, it just really capitalizes on, on the riff and the transitions and the rhythmic aspects and, and everything else. I, I think it's, I think it's one of the rare examples of a cover being, you know, sort of better than the original. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, you know, and I know that you kind of, you know, poo pooed on the spaghetti incident earlier and rightly so, you know, it was pretty odd, but these guys did know how to pull out some pretty good covers on their tours and in their shows. And they did have a lot of musical appreciation. These guys were musical appreciators and lovers. And, you know, they, they were not just out there trying to blaze a bunch of like hair glam sounds. These guys really had a lot of appreciation and influence um, from, you know, Slash to Izzy to Axel. I mean, across the board. And you could really sense that. Well, you know, so you go from a, a, you know, unleashed rocker to a blues song to a early seventies cover to probably one of the more kind of emotional, you know, I hate to call it a power ballad, but it kind of is. It's almost like kind of a post hair metal power ballad, kind of a vibe to it with a really, really special and splendid uh, track for and don't cry. I mean, I've, you know, I've gotten lumps in my throat to this song. Uh, Nubs, I think you would sing this to your little awesome my little awesome little nieces when they were uh when they were little ones and it's a incredibly emotional song perfectly performed perfectly produced i think it's one of the more emotional songs um in rock history as far as just the way it can grab you he wrote it for you know that he has that gal's face on his tattooed on his arm Apparently her name was Monique. She was somebody that Axel and Izzy had both sort of dated at times uh, early in the band's history. He wrote this song for her. There's a version on one. There's an alternate lyric version on two, which obviously we'll get to in the next part, Nub. 
Yeah, I have to talk about that one. You, you, you yeah. get the good one. I get the other one. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, fair enough. There's a third version as well that was recorded back during the Appetite Sessions. This is a song that had been around for a while. Um, Izzy, huge, huge contributor on this song. So anyone thinking that Izzy only had the bluesy fillers on Use Your Illusion 1, you know, don't cry. He had a very, very heavy contribution toward. In fact, I think he wrote most of the song. Uh, Nub, I'll turn it over to you. I just think this one is um, is um, remarkable. It's one of the best songs of the decade by far. You know, maybe top five. Outstanding songwriting. Great vision. Tremendous power through a song that's that's really sensitive. and. I think the thing with Don't Cry that stands out is like, this is how good this band could be. Not good. This is how just out of this world this band could be. Don't Cry is, it's an achievement. It's not a song. And I think it's kind of underappreciated as time has gone on. I'd love to see somebody come along and cover it and introduce it to, you know, next generation of, of listener. In my show, I got to give it up. You chose the climax of the song. <laughs> you know, you always is so good with the clips, but when he does, when he does that little slowdown and he does in the morning uh, light now, baby. Yeah. I mean, it is so effective. It's absurdly good. Uh, Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon contributed toward the vocals, uh, as I think most people know. He was in the video with the flyover. Very cool. But Guns N' Roses had some badass videos during this time, I, I must say. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm very much uh, looking forward, not to spoiler alert here, but I am looking forward to uh, when you go through uh, part two, why the Sam hell? It was necessary to have another version of this song. It (laughs) had to be a pure business decision. I mean, we'll get to it in part two, but like, there's just no other explanation. It was bizarre. Well, I'm looking forward to to many of your thoughts on part two. uh, that being certainly one of them. Track five is Perfect Crime. All right, so enough of those ballads, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Switch. I, I think it jams though, dude. I mean, it, you know, Slash's guitar work there is pretty sick. Great choppy rhythm part underneath, right? I mean, Izzy Stradlin was a fantastic rhythm guitar player. Precise, you know? precise, yeah, yeah, and and he could play some lead too, obviously. But you know, uh, when it comes to rhythm guitar, you know, I when ba- when we had Bayless on, you know, doing the Umphreys episodes, you know, I mentioned to him that you know Hetfield. And Brendan Bayless and uh, Malcolm Young, Malcolm Young are kind of top tier rhythm guitarists for me. Izzy ain't that far off. I mean, he's he's definitely up there as well. And that chop that he provides underneath a lot of Slash's solo work is really important because a lot of people are kind of focused on the lead piece, but without that, you know, the friction of that rhythm part underneath it being creative, it ain't going to sound the same and it ain't going to sound as good. Now, what do you think of perfect crime? I know this is probably a little bit more up-tempo than you usually like out of your GNR, but what do you think of this track five coming off of Don't Cry? You know, I'm glad you mentioned Izzy's rhythm because the, the major test is who do you play air guitar to 
And with Guns N' Roses, with the exception of things like November Rain and some of the iconic moments, I'm playing air guitar much more to Izzy than to Slash. Hmm, yeah. And, and that's, that's always, a, you know, same as Malcolm Young, you know, but Perfect Crime, I love it. It's yes, it is uptempo. And, and again, back to that punky sort of deal, but it's just kind of an assault. And after Don't Cry, I like the placement. But the thing I love about this song, and I always have, is just the, God damn it, it's a perfect cry. You know, the way that he just sneaks in like the, or it's a motherfucking bird. Like, isn't it? Like, he just sneaks in the swear words, like in a hilarious way. Isn't that what he does during the choruses? I mean, it's, it's like, how can we get the parental advisory sticker to not be, uh, to not be on this album, although that certainly didn't work. Well, you mentioned, you know, earlier, I mean, as far as, you know, Axel kind of almost rapping and he was influenced by hip hop. He was a huge, you know, public enemy fan. And I think he was into a lot of the Def Jam stuff. I mean, he definitely, you know, that was a part of his musical taste. And in a lot of cases, whether it was over a rocker, over a blues track, or even in some cases over a slower song like Don't Cry or November Rain, you heard his vocals becoming more percussive and more rhythmic. So everyone knew he could howl. Everyone knew he could scream. Everyone knew his range is legendary. But the rhythmic, almost percussive nature of his vocals, I think, was one of the things that really came through here on Use Your Illusion as far as how he began to approach things. Well, there's nothing percussive about his vocal on this one. And again, let's just throw everything on the table here as far as genres and styles go with You Ain't the First. You know, this kind of is a little bit of an aftermath of Lies. You know, that back half of Lies was very stripped down, very acoustic driven. Um, hey, listen, I think it's a neat little song. You know, it's uh, kind of got a nice, you know, swaying kind of, uh, you know, waltz to it. Um, the lyrics are kind of funny. Nubs, thoughts? Uh, kind of a throwaway track for me. Kind of an Izzy song, you know, and it was like two minutes and 30 seconds long. It's just, yeah. I don't, I don't really get this one. This wouldn't make my use your illusion draft. Let's put it that way. Yeah, definite Izzy song there. All right. From the folksy, waltzy nature of You Ain't the First, we go into track seven, Bad Obsession, here at the midpoint of the record. So, Nub, I kind of feel like what Bad Obsession does is it kind of takes what you've been through so far and sort of, you know, mashes it up a little. You know, it's a nice, powerful song. It's mid-tempo. It's bluesy. It's got some hooks. It's got this cool kind of gravelly low vocal from Axel. I was like when he kind of sang down in his lower register there. Um, It's got the piano that's prevalent. It almost feels like... You know, here are the first six tracks, you know, let's put them all in a blender and come out with Bad Obsession, which I think kind of has a nice pace to it. And I think is a nice uh, approach here on kind of the midpoint of this one. Yeah, I like the sleaziness of it. Uh, you Ain't the First is kind of Izzy gone south and Bad Obsession is Izzy at his best, right? That kind of 
sleazy, slithering rocker. I love the honky tonk piano. It's very, this song is very use your illusion. I think you nailed it. Combines a lot of different things going on in one. I dig it. I'm, I'm definitely a fan of Bad Obsession. And again, I, I like its place in the sequence. It's kind of in the middle. You're still trying to figure out what the hell this album is going to be all about. And, and here you get this really eclectic thing going on with uh, Bad Obsession. It's a good track. Yeah. Southern Harmony by the Black Crows came out, I think, a year after this. And you hear a lot of it there. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, they heard a song like this in its sort of, obviously it's bluesiness, it's hookiness, but also there's some lushness to it. Rich Robinson would never admit it, but I think there may have been a little bit of influence there from a song like Bad Obsession on those guys. Black Crows is like having two Axl Roses in a band. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, and, they're, <laughs> and they're related. How about yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Track eight, Back Off Bitch. So this song, probably not too surprising, was an older track. This was actually played on the Appetite Tour. So this song had been around for a while. Kind of back to basics. Nice little rocker here. I mean, maybe a little bit filler. You know, I don't think this would make my single album uh, cut either. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's listenable. It's good. I don't know. The dumb lyrics are a little distracting to me. You know, <laughs> just very Axel. You know, well, look back. at you paying attention to lyrics. How about that? You know, I only do when they're either the greatest lyrics of all time or a complete distraction and this will yeah. fall into the latter, you know? Yeah. But in my opinion, this is a song that just didn't need to be here after Bad Obsession. It's like the younger, less smart, less attractive brother of Bad Obsession, you know? And, and the two songs are similar enough to where I don't know why they went back to back. So this is one where I think it was an error in sequencing and probably just you know, sort of a, uh, a falseness of the, the idea that this song needed to be on this particular album, but Hey, this was, this was not about being choosy. This was a, this was the quantity theory, right? Take everything and throw it at the wall. It sure was. I think you make a fair point. Track nine is double talking jive. Who would have thought you'd hear a flamenco guitar nub? That's actually played by Slash. You know, I mean, listen, Slash is a fantastic guitar player. Okay. Um, and, you know, the live versions of this, it's interesting, became like this long sort of jam. You know, they were extended to like uh, sort of an eight or nine minute type song, which on here is just under three and a half minutes. So, Clearly, I think they liked some of the framework of this and turned it into a bit more of an experience live. I included that end part because I do think it's very cool how the sort of rocker fades out into this, um, you know, kind of uh, flamenco Spanish guitar sound played by Slash. Um, again, more dichotomy, more duality. Um, it's an okay song all in all, but I do like that ending. I do too. Yeah. And, uh, Shows the range. And to your point, the, you know, these guys are really good musicians aside from the drummer, you know, and uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's cool to see slash kind of flex his muscles on both sides of his playing style. He could rock out with the best of them, but 
he also had some, uh, you know, some diversity to what he did. And, and that was cool to see at the end of this track. Well, it's really neat how that uh, flamenco guitar takes you into obviously quite an epic and obviously one of the most important songs of the 90s, I think is fair to say, with the 8 minute and 57 second experience of November Rain. It's completely impossible to find the right clip of this song. I, I almost figured we should play multiple, but hey, we got 16 tracks. So, uh, you know, you're, you're valuable. Your time is valuable and we don't want to overdo it. But um, obviously, you know, you have the intro section um, and then you have kind of this, these two just crazy epic solos from Slash. And then you have the upbeat, outro um with just an absolutely iconic solo from slash into this um really really emotional outro with the sounds of rainfall uh i mean it's a masterpiece i don't know how anybody whether you like this band or not whether you like this style of music or not i don't know how anybody could say otherwise Clearly, there was a very iconic, memorable video that went hand in hand with this, um, which again was this this theatrical um, portrayal. I mean, Axel showing his chops as an actor. You know, I mean, it, 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 the whole experience of November Rain was special, um, and I think it holds up extremely well. You know, top to bottom, nah, but you know, gotta be one of the most important songs of that entire decade and probably up there as far as one of the more important tracks um, in rock history. What it meant at the time for a band like this to execute on something like this. And it was all Axel. I mean, the, the entire thing. I mean, he's the sole writer of the song. You can tell that this was sort of Axel's masterpiece and, and boy, did it work. I remember the video, just the sort of impressive visual of him just playing a piano. And I remember thinking at the time, even at a young age, oh, there's no way he's really playing that thing. Well, yeah, yes, he is. And he composed the song. It, it, it's sort of Guns N' Roses like Bohemian Rhapsody in a way without any absurdism. It, it's, it's a very serious, very driven song. But just like Bohemian Rhapsody, it has accompanying imagery through the video that you just cannot forget. See, this video was played ad nauseum on MTV. <laughs> Never got sick of it. And yeah. would always watch it when yeah. it was not. You totally know? agree. Totally agree. Start to finish. This, November Rain is Use Your Illusion. You know, when you think about this album, you're not going to think about the, the punky up-tempo stuff and some of the humorous moments and some of the things that showed the band's range. You're going to think about a small collection of songs with November rain, probably at the forefront. I think what, what's extraordinary about it all around is just the vision from top to bottom, the, the way that the parts all merge into one another. There's a fluidity to it that made it nine minutes long. And you never felt like that. 
you know, I never, I never listened to this song feeling like, Oh, it's so long. Never. You couldn't wait to get to the next part. And then you couldn't wait to get to the next part. And it, it took you on this journey. It's, it's a lot of the same reasons why I like prog rock because you're always looking forward to that next bit and the next showing of skill. And at the end you do get this, you know, unbelievable showing of skill with slashes solo. And remember he, you know, the, the video is so great. He, he walks out of the church just in time to play his solo outdoors with the wind blowing his hair and everything. Oh yeah. The, the thing too, you, you can't forget about this song is the, um, performance on the vmas with elton john yes because that was just as shocking it was like whoa like elton john is playing piano with guns and roses for this rather blistering version of november rain and it's just it had such a unique place in the music scene of the 90s the early 90s and it is use your illusion that this this song should represent why we're still talking about these albums today yeah, a great point. And, and great point on the uh, VMA's performance. You come to learn after that how much Elton John's music meant to Axl Rose. I mean, Elton John was a tremendous influence on Axl. And you didn't really know that before this performance, but afterwards, and then I believe he gave the speech that inducted Elton John into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken, and just said, you know, how much you know, his, his work and his playing and his composition and all those things meant to Axel. It was a very cool moment. This was the longest song in music history to enter the billboard top 10. And to your point, you know, it's just one of those songs. You can't carve it up. You can't radio edit the thing because nobody in their right mind feels it to be, you know, too long or too indulgent. And I think you nailed it when you said you just can't wait to get to the next part. And you're almost bummed out when it's over, you know, with the rain falling. It's like, can we do it's like, can we ride that roller coaster again? Cause that was pretty awesome. So, all right, we get into our uh, duo of garden songs here, which starts out with the garden. That is uh, that is a tasty treat right there. And again, you know, uh, Izzy's rhythm just as important. I mean, uh, to your point, I'm I'm playing along with that chop more so than I'm you know trying to you know finger along with what Slash is doing. The Garden's a jam. It's a fan favorite. It's one that isn't you know necessarily up there as far as many of the casual Guns N' Roses fans, but their hardcore fans love it. And it's a song with a a lot of depth and a lot of feeling. And I think a pretty meaningful way to come off of November Rain, coming off of November Rain from a sequencing standpoint, couldn't have been easy. I think they kind of nailed it with the garden here. Love the garden. And let's not forget guest spot from one of our sons of Detroit here, Alice Cooper, who sings on the song. You got it. Uh, I think he sings some lead, doesn't it? I mean, it's sort of, you can definitely hear him in there. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it, monumental tasks to try and come off of November Rain into something else and to choose something as musical as The Garden. And, and you, you nailed it too. That the whole guitar duality on this song is terrific. And Izzy is holding down the, the rhythm as good as anyone ever has. So, yeah, nice next step after November Rain for sure. It sets up a, a very memorable second half of Use Your Illusion 1. 
It sure does. And I think memorable to those who really dig in. Um, the more casual listener probably gets to November rain and maybe checks out, which, uh, which to your point, I think would be a bit of a mistake. We go from the garden into the rocker with another memorable video here with Garden of Eden. <laughs> suck on that <laughs> it's so great the suck on that and all those weird like elements that come out of nowhere this is um this was a big slash song slash gets a writing credit um that progression there coming out of the quote-unquote chorus is really nice and god i just love that that marshall stack les paul tone from slash is oh i just i I've been trying so hard to recreate that for years. It's probably because I can't play like him, but you know, you know, <laughs> I've tried every trick in the book to try and recreate his tone. It's just outstanding, but great video here. This was the one that was a single take with the fisheye lens and the bouncing ball on the lyrics. And, you know, again, these guys, it was in Guns N' Roses impersonators, right? It's, it's not the actual band. Isn't it kids? Uh, they, yeah, they had they had kids and the band, uh, both kind of. Okay, yeah, right. there were there were a couple different versions of it, but um, and and Dizzy and some other guy are in the background just dancing because I guess they don't play on the song, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is always funny. But you know, their imagery and their again, it's it's an it's a integrated artistic kind of approach with these guys, and we don't talk about videos a lot on here, but. Think about we're only through, we're not even through part one. And we've said the word video like four times. It mattered. It was meaningful. I think it had sort of a material impact on the entire presentation of this. And, and Garden of Eden is obviously just a great little rocker, you know, super up-tempo and all that with a great lick and a catchy kind of uh, flow to it. Um, but again, I think a situation where you hear the song and you think of the video and you think of kind of the whole experience around it. What do you think of Garden of Eden, Nub? It's a jam. It's a jam. And you know, the, another good example of the up-tempo, you know, the up-tempo can go really well and really poorly with this band and with these two albums. And this one jams, man. I, I love Axel's vocal delivery. You know, again, you're getting back into that hip hop sort of deal and, uh, he's just letting her fly it, but you know. None better than the suck on that. <laughs> so nineteen ninety one, just so necessary, so needed. Right, right. <laughs> Next track is "Don't Damn Me." Got some dynamics, got some tempo changes. Uh, again, the, the percussive nature of Axel's vocal, I think, is cool here. Um, great track. I mean, I like the kind of mixing of the two different tempos within the approach. I like it. What do you think? Huge fan of Don't Damn Me. You, you just see the band getting more and more cinematic here as the album winds to a close. And I think that continues on through elements of Use Your Illusion 2 as well. But more of a dramatic approach to the songs and, and that, that cut the way that they shift the tempo there is really impactful. I mean, you know, you kind of, 
open yeah. up into this looser groove. So yeah, it, it's, it's one of my favorites for sure. You don't see that coming, right? And again, th- that's a lot of what user illusion is about is, you know, being authentic to what you are, but also being unpredictable. And I think don't damn me handles that extremely well. We're getting down the stretch here with three more tracks. This one is track 14, Bad Apples. So, you know, there are probably many that would consider this, you know, more of sort of a, a, a filler blues track. And, you know, you, you and I, neither of us are, are particularly um, blues types, right? But, you know, the piano incorporation, I think it's cool that there were four writing credits on here. It was Axel Slash, Izzy, and Duff, which means that it was kind of them jamming, collaborating. It was a group effort. So not my favorite on, on the, not my favorite on part one. But down the stretch here, I do like that they kind of revisit the blues thing one more time. I do like that this was the group seemingly kind of having fun and all contributing. So not my favorite, but there are some things to like about Bad Apples. I like the sound. I think it's a really well-produced song. I do love the collaborative spirit behind it. But yeah, it's like how many bluesy piano rockers can you take on one album? I mean. Yeah. It loses the effect. I, I think that's part of the indulgence of both user illusion albums is it's sort of like they overkill it to the point where it loses kind of, it's like a drug, you know, like each time you take it, like you need to do more of it to get more impact. But the problem is it's, it is what it is. And you sort of are not quite as into it uh, after hearing it so much, you know? So it, it, it's fine for those reasons, but yeah, they could have done without one of these bluesy rockers for sure. I think that's fair and really well said. I mean, it is a clean produced track. I mean, it's, I think every element comes through. It's mixed extremely well, you know, so certainly a attaboy to clink and team on, on a track like that. Um, and perhaps, you know, they realized too, that, you know, it was another blues track and certain things needed, needed to be accentuated and certain things needed to come out and, and what it, what was a, a very nice, cleanly produced song. Um, and I agree with you. That's one of the strengths of it. And I also agree with you that, you know, it's probably a fair take from many that, you know, one more blues track was one more that was needed. These last two certainly, uh, round the thing out in very, uh, fascinating fashion. The first being dead horse. You know, it jams. Um, I think what's more interesting than just Dead Horse itself is just like the bookends of the two tracks that begin the album, the bookends of the two tracks that end it, I think are equally as fascinating in terms of this straightforward kind of just, you know, rocker, little bluesy, but not over the top bluesy. Um, just really a kind of a rock and roll song, pretty straightforward multifaceted in some ways, but, but for the most part, fairly simple. 
and what it takes you into, obviously, in the closer. But before we get to that closer, Nub, uh, thoughts on Dead Horse? It's very Axel. I, th- I think he's the, uh, the sole songwriting credit on it. You can hear that. Yep. You know, and, and the vocals are so present in the mix. <laughs> you could just tell that Axel really wanted to get this one out there and make sure that uh, he was the focal point of it. So, you know, again, I, it, would it make the draft? Probably not. Do I dig kind of hearing four minutes of Axel's singular vision? I do. But, uh, you know, to me, it just sets up the thrilling conclusion. Well, I was going to say, if I had to guess, I would say this one probably would make the draft. The closer to use your illusion one coma. So that riff and that progression kind of takes you in and out of the song in many different places. Um, if you thought November Rain was going to be the only uh, epic you were going to get on this side, um, you were mistaken by the time you get to Coma, which is 10 minutes and 16 seconds, the longest Guns N' Roses song in their catalog. It is very non traditional. There is no chorus, there are no um, you know, sort of structured sections to it that are in a um, progression or traditional sense. It's unique. You know, Nubs, I always usually have one or two that I'm just dying to hear your take on. And this is one of them. So I'm going to hold off and hear you first. But uh, how do you feel about the way this one closes out with Coma? Huge fan of Coma. Just the the way it builds toward that riff and then the D do D do D it's such a dissonant kind of uneasy riff. But I mean, the song is basically documenting Axel ODing. Right. And I, I think he actually like went into a coma or something like it. And so, you know, it, it utilizes this big riff. It's a very uneasy sort of feeling to it, which I dig. I like the talk stuff that's going on in the background when you know kind of mid song or mid to late song when you hear those voices it's just sort of a haunting way to close it it's it, people call it an epic because it's long but it it doesn't have a, a theme that it builds around aside from the guitar riff it's not november rain you know it's not estranged but it's 10 minutes of winding thoughts and it's unfocused as part of its charm I just really like the exploration aspect of it. I think it's well-placed as the last song on the first uh, part of Use Your Illusion. And I love listening to it. I love the imagination behind it. And clearly Axel is the driving force as well. I, I, I'm guessing that the riff is very Slash. That sounds like something Slash would come up with, you know, in his living room. But uh, yeah, I, I just, I love the whole idea behind coma just as much as it as a song itself yeah i, I think that's well said you know and well i slash obviously contributed but you can tell it's still all axel you know i mean axel takes you through i think the the different twists and turns here and was obviously the main composer you know i, I think it's again it, it wraps up in proper fashion here showing the 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 duality of things in to your point it was very thoughtful um, but also very loose, 
this is not one of those like tight structured deals here. This is theatrics first and song structure and traditional structure and approach second. And I do think that's part of what makes it work. It's a great closer. If this was the closer to the entire piece, I'm not sure I'd love it. But as the closer to part one, I think it's perfect. So again, 76 minutes there, 16 tracks, quite the experience. And, uh, you know, you take a deep breath, you take a drink of water at halftime, uh, and then uh, you've got a whole nother half to go. Nubs, can you believe we got a whole nother part of this to go in part two? I mean, are you, are you, are you out of stamina? Are you ready? I mean, what, what's going on? Where are you at here? Uh, cause you know, my half's over now I'm good. I can put a towel around my neck, you know, uh, you know, grab some water, sort of sit on the sidelines and just hang out. Um, how are you feeling? Did we, did we pull every ounce of energy out of you or you still got some left for this second round, buddy? I mean, I've been in the bullpen waiting, so you just wait your turn (laughs) and, uh, a middle reliever has to stay mentally strong in order to come in and kind of do your job and help finish the game. So I'm ready to come in. No doubt about it, but, 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 you know, it's been a long game. I mean, we, we've, we've been through a lot already, so I got to stay mentally focused and see if I can bring it strong for the uh, second half of the game. Well, I just hope you're not a member of the Detroit Tigers bullpen. Uh, no, maybe you should try a, a, a prestigious bullpen like the Kansas city Royals or something like that. You know, something Stop like that. Stop it. Mm. Rub it in, man. Rub it in. Hey, you said bullpen, you know, you, you teed it up. <laughs> yeah. I brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it's Toph, and that is a wrap on part one of our Use Your Illusion two-parter. So we'll find out if Nubs is ready and has the energy to get us through part two here on episode 47, and we will be back with part two of Use Your Illusion 2 next week. In the meantime, take care and see you next week.